Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast, Say. I'm your host, Jana Ali. I started my work surrounding the topic of indentureship in the Caribbean in 2018. When I had initially started searching for material that was already out there, there wasn't much in any sense of the word. Academically, there was very little, which made my academic investigation extremely difficult. Um, And similarly, in the arts, there was barely any examples. This is when I knew that this work could be a very special point of reference for a lot of people out there just like me, that wanted to celebrate their heritage through art and discussion. Two years have flown by, and since releasing the article, collection, and podcast, there have been an overwhelming amount of Indo-Caribbean creatives messaging me about them finally understanding their heritage or finding a piece that they can relate to. One of these creatives started their very own podcast in a quest to educate and explore the Indo-Caribbean experience. Today, I am joined with the Cutlass podcast host, Vinay Harisha. Am I saying it right? Harichan, yeah. Harichan, okay. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Jana, for having me on. Hey, everyone. Uh, if you're in the if you're in the UK, uh, hello. Uh, nice to meet you all. Nice to be connected with the Indo-Caribbean community there. My name is Vinay Harishan, just like Jana mentioned. I was born in Trinidad. I am of Indian descent. I moved to Florida in the United States when I was four years old. Oh, actually, um, three and a half, if we're being exact. Okay, to be precise. <laughs> That was three and like five months. Um, And I grew up in South Florida where, for people who do not know, there is a very large Indo-Caribbean community in the South Florida area. We have a lot of Indo-Caribbean sites, whether that is, you know, puja stores to Trinidadian groceries, uh, grocery shops. And so I had a lot of outlets to really express myself and be a part of the community. But as I got older, as many of you have probably experienced, you start to ask questions and the cutlass is the product of all those many years of independent research that I've done. And just as a hobby, purely for your benefit, as well as my own to continue learning, I started a platform to just teach people some things. And that's all I'm doing, and I'm very happy to be connected with people like Jana and other creators within the community to help our community grow and learn more. It's quite interesting as well because, like, when we first started talking, I didn't know that you were in America, and obviously, you probably knew that I was in London. Um, but it's quite interesting how, um, especially in this day and age, how easy it is to find each other, especially with like common, common goals and to be able to work together like this and um, towards the same goal. So it's, it's, it's really nice actually that we get your perspective because a lot of the things that I was talking about in terms of the Indo-Caribbean experience is very um, British specific. It's very centered around the Windrush era, which um, as far as I know, wasn't the same when people were going to America. So mm. it's quite interesting to be able to get your perspective on things. So as you said, you're in um, Florida, which mm. I understand um, has a much larger population of Indo-Caribbeans than we do in London. Um, in fact, I have family there myself. 
Um, what is the community like there? Does it steer heavily towards the Indian heritage of the culture or the Caribbean-ness of the culture? You know, I think it kind of depends on a case-by-case basis. Yes, the community is very large, and we often joke about how we all know each other. (laughs) No, we'll kind of just call everyone cousin, or we'll say, oh, yeah, I know a person, they're my, you know, cousin somehow through some relatives. So we are very close and tight-knit when the Indo-Caribbean diaspora in the, the United States is very clustered in certain areas, so South Florida... New York, Brooklyn and Queens and uh, Liberty Avenue and um, Richmond Hill and then some areas in Texas and then Toronto and Canada. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have like these four focal hubs of, you know, Indo-Caribbean identity and our community is all based kind of around there or has, you know, family that they could trace back there. Um, My own immigration story is very recent. I'm fascinated by the whole you know, generation of the Windrush era, because I came here in 2000. Um, The vast majority of my family still lives back home. And I really don't have that experience of having a completely transplanted community in the United States. I've always had the majority of family back home and having to communicate with them, you know, via the phone and having a constant revolving door of visitors from Trinidad coming through my home at every point of the year, bringing, you know, entire suitcases of things from Trinidad. Um, And then also having like that established Indian Indo-Caribbean community here, which, as I mentioned, we have our own grocery stores and we have our own puja shops or religious shops for Hindus. We have our own temples. We have like these very specific cultural enclaves. And for me, I've always found that in general, because if we're, you know, kind of breaking it down, as I mentioned, it differs case by case. But in general, I find that the Indo-Caribbean community walks this very fine line of embracing Caribbean culture as well as Indian culture, and they do it very well. Um, You know, I always see members of the community having these all-out community events for Diwali and Pagwa, or Holi, for some people. And it's this big, huge event that we, you know, community, like, rents out this huge park, and there'll be, like, city officials come over and declare, like, Diwali Day in this county, or, you know, uh, Pagwa is now recognized here in this community. So we go all out for those, like, Indian festivals and, Um, People uh, appreciate Indian Arrival Day and have their own functions for that, both Guyanese and Trinidadian people. But then they also are very excited for Carnival and and stuff like that. And people love Calypso and reggae and soca music as much as they love Bollywood and Chutney music. So I think that because the Indo-Caribbean community is so big here and we had like those people that came over in the 70s and 80s who created those initial mandiras and those initial spaces and then more and more people just ended up coming with time we've really kind of built a solid foundation where people are proud of both Mm. Uh, for me i have certain individual uh particularities in terms of how I identify, which I'm sure we'll get into. But in general, we we pretty much, you know, celebrate both. I, I would have wondered if the... 
because the Indo-Caribbeans came to Britain with such a movement and such a, a, a strong purpose of rebuilding Britain after the war, that there would be more of an establishment here you would you would almost think that 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 would urge people to kind of stick to their communities and and rely on each other during such a difficult time but i think and we'll get onto identity but i think because um coming here there was such a almost like a blurred lines between what was asian what was caribbean and what was indo-caribbean um i think it was harder for them to almost establish that sort of community they were more concerned with making money and trying to survive um but it's it's interesting to see that 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 the it sounds like the community where you're from is is very much equal in terms of indian heritage and caribbean culture which is quite nice to hear um so how does the general population react to, to you as an Indo-Caribbean person? Is it better understood in the United States or is it still, do you feel like you have the same experience as us in the UK? I think if you were to talk broadly about the, um, the, you know, the States and Canada in general, people would not know. They would think Indo, Indigo, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> So I don't think they know about us, but in the surrounding communities where they live, I think definitely a lot more people know because when I go to roti shops and when I go to the Indo-Guyanese, Indo-Trinidadian, you know, Chinese restaurants, there are a lot of people who are not from our community eating there, buying the food, mm. um, people that show up to the holy functions because who doesn't like a good party? Yep. And, good food there are people who love Diwali that come because it's very much you know if you're in South Florida and all of a sudden you see a bunch of people in these clothes and they're lighting these clay lamps you're kind of I imagine you're drawn to them so um, there are a lot of people that are aware of us who are not from the community and for the most part I think they are you know pretty accepting they don't really know what to do with us because we look Indian, then we open our mouths and like something comes out that they're not prepared for. Um, and then I think with the South Asian community, there is a, I don't know if this is particular to the America because, or the United States, because I've talked to a lot of you know, Indian people in Canada, Indo-Caribbean people in Canada, and there seems to be a lot of division among South Asians in Canada and Indo-Caribbeans in Canada. I don't know if that's because those communities are very concentrated there in Toronto and, you know, areas like that, um, where huge masses of them just went and have been there for decades, that there is like this kind of tribalism that separates people. And, you know, the Punjabis stick with the Punjabis, the Indo-Guyanese and Trinidadians stick with each other, um, you know, the Pakistanis stick with the Pakistanis. I think maybe in the United States, because when it comes to race for us, everything is so much about color, right. you know, you brown, therefore, you know, that can mean you're Middle Eastern, you're Latino, you're Indian, whether that's from South Asia or the Caribbean, we're kind of all lumped into these um, certain groups and we're not represented a lot. 
Whereas if you go to Toronto, you will see Indo-Trinidadian people who are news anchors who have like an accent, right? And they have, you know, that super long Indo-Caribbean last name that means that that person has to be from the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes representation can kind of work against you where it gives people a sense of pride where they then do not want to associate with the other. Yeah. Whereas us in the States, because we really haven't had that representation, we have to come together in a lot of ways. There is still divide um, between, you know, Indo-Caribbeans and the rest of the community, both the South Asian community, the Caribbean community, but I would say it's a lot less and it's becoming less and less in time with the generations. I see Indo-Caribbeans at the Jamaican, um, you know, food store, you know, buying jerk chicken and rice and all that stuff. And then I see them at the South Asian restaurants ordering mm. chicken and naan. And I think we're really kind of um, navigating all of these relationships in a new way. But for the most part, we are divided in some ways, but I think it's, it's changing rapidly. Yeah, I think I think that's important as well to be able to um, be in both spaces and to be accepted in both spaces. I mean, like when we were talking on your podcast, um, my experience with the Asian community growing up, I always felt like I wasn't a part of them. But to hear that that isn't so much a problem um, where you are is 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 nice it must be really it, it, it must be easier for you to then delve into your own personal history as someone that is a descendant from india itself so um i'm quite sure i didn't know about um in like places like canada and toronto the, there's such a big divide there i wasn't aware that that was such a thing i mean i don't obviously they are quite well established there um yeah no and here it's just not as um, I feel like it's much like like how you're talking about and where you're living. It's it's not so much we don't have much representation in the UK, and so I do think it is much easier for young Indo Caribbeans to um want to be want to stay closer to the South Asian community, um, and rightfully so. I feel like so. Yeah, and I, I definitely, obviously, like my, you know, everything I have is all anecdotal, but I think, and I don't want to like romanticize anything or make it seem like everything's super peaceful and there's no divide. However, I do think that we have strength by numbers, right? The amount mm-hmm. of Indo-Caribbeans living in, the Uni- living in the United States and Canada might be, you know, quadruple the amount living in the United Kingdom just because of how our migration history, right? I think I think there's almost like an equal amount of Indo-Guyanese people living abroad than they are back in Guyana. And a huge part of that is in the United States and in Canada. Yeah. So having strength by numbers, you have the luxury to go, I was rejected by these South Asian people. I'm going to go back to my Indo-Caribbean space and be with my community. And then, oh, well, these other South Asian people accepted me and that's okay. I was rejected by these West Indian people as not being a Caribbean enough. I can go back to my community and then, oh, well, those other Caribbean people accept me. So we have that luxury of being able to take everything on a case-by-case basis. Um, And that's what I've felt. I've had Indian people that um, made me feel very much lesser than because of my ethnic history. And then I have 
Indian people from India, descended from India, who are in my own family now through marriage, who mm. accept us as their own. Um, and same thing with Caribbean people. I've had Caribbean people who do not see me as Caribbean enough. And a huge part of that has to do with religion because the Caribbean is hugely tied to Christianity. And, um, you know, Muslims and Hindus are kind of on the periphery of that. And then I have Caribbean people who come to Diwali for our big Diwali celebration. And they're, you know, eating with their hands and they love Dalpuri and Chana and and all that stuff. And they're very much a part of the community and accept us as well. So I think it's definitely on a a case-by-case basis. But overall, yeah, as I mentioned before, we are kind of able to move in between. Yeah, and I think that's where it kind of differs slightly to the UK, well, at least in my experience and and Bilal's experience, uh, my cousin, is that we never had that strong sense of Indo-Caribbean community to be able to go back to. And that's kind of where this whole, like, almost identity crisis kind of came into play of like well where is our home base what is our foundation and I think now as young Indo-Caribbeans we're starting to realize that we create that for ourselves Mm -hmm. we take our experiences and we decide what is Indo-Caribbean and that can be valid Mm -hmm. so um talking a bit about ancestry and obviously um us being descendants from from people in India um do you know much about your personal ancestry So I know a little bit. Um, I know that for people who are from Trinidad who might be more familiar with the geography, my family is from Karani in Trinidad, which is an area that is heavily tied to agriculture. It was one of the last areas in Trinidad where Indian people kind of held on, well, not held on, but were still involved in, you know, sugarcane production and um, that kind of industry for a very long time. In Trinidad, it's referred to as like the Indian heartland, the kind of central, east central corridor. And so all of my family is from that area, that Karani area in central Trinidad, and is very much like Hindu, Muslim, um, very Indian dominated in terms of population, vast majority Indian. Um, Both of my parents grew up there. And in terms of our roots in India, I only really have family stories that have been passed down. I don't have anything tangible because I haven't been able to go back and um, go through all the records and stuff like that. I know that there is a system for retracing your ancestry. Um, There's a guy named uh, Sam Shudin, and he does a lot of work in helping people actually go back to their ancestral village in India. Um, and I just haven't had that, you know, opportunity as yet. But through all of these stories that have been passed down, I know that my family comes from Uttar Pradesh, which is where most of the indentured came from. I believe 85% of them or 80% of them came from Bihar, Uttar Pradesh and Northeastern India. And they were, you know, Bojpuri-speaking people. Uh, My great-grandfather, my Parnana, on my mother's side, he was a Bojpuri language teacher and had his school and he would teach like language and music and all of that stuff. So I know that my family is from that tradition and I only specify that because we do have certain breakdowns in terms of ancestry. They are very much you know, uh, groups that came from South India, people who are of Tamil descent. 
and have certain uh, different beliefs with Hinduism in terms of the denomination that they belong to. But my family is very much from that, um, you know, North Indian Uttar Pradesh, uh, what they call Sanatan Dharma Hindu um, kind of sect. So that's really all that I know. It's kind of difficult because as many of us know with the history of Indo-Caribbean culture and community, there was a lot of death. Mm, yeah. um, people that were killed, a lot of people that died from illness. Yeah. A lot of my great-grandparents were orphans. You know, my great-grandmother, my Parnani, who I actually had mentioned on the platform once before, she was an orphan, and we don't really know when she was born. She has an estimated birthday. There are a lot of people in my family who were not sure when they were born, um, were not sure, like, what their actual legal name is, because you know, record keeping wasn't very good back then. Um, but in terms of like a general idea, that's really all I know. Yeah, it's, it's so hard because like in terms of um, my family, my grandmother's from Georgetown, Guyana, and my grandfather is from Essequibo, Guyana. Is it the other way around? No, I think that's the right way. <laughs> um, and... Um, in terms of their family from my grandmother's side i don't know much because as i was getting interested in kind of the ancestry side of things she passed away so i kind of only had my grandfather's sister to really talk to and she kind of said that her grandfather was it was i think it was her grandfather or her great-grandfather it must have been her grandfather was brought to Guyana as a child a very very young child so it was his mother really that came and she came by herself um which was quite common back then what had happened after a lot of research I found out what had happened is that um initially they brought over a lot of men um to the Caribbean later on they realized that there was quite a big ratio difference so they had the British commission for them to bring over a lot of women um and so it it's still undiscovered to me at least um, if these women were forced, if they were tricked, if they were separated from their husbands, if they were maybe widows and they needed opportunity to start a new life. Um, but as far as we know, she came by herself with, her, with one child. Um, we don't know where in India we have records of um, their journey and they, they departed from Calcutta. So that's, mm. that's as far as we've been able to go back. Um, but for me personally, um i really would like to be able to 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 as we discussed before to find out who these people were and what their lives were like what type of situation they were um coming to to the west indies or the caribbean from um especially in terms of the situation in which they came obviously me and you know we that a lot of them were sometimes tricked or uh promised something that wasn't really there um and they came under almost like false pretenses. Um, and they came to a, a situation which was filled with a lot of struggle and abuse. Um, do you ever struggle with the idea of what your ancestors could have potentially have gone through? Yeah, I actually struggle with it a lot. And um, for the people who follow the Instagram page, I do post a lot of very old images. And the thing that people don't realize that I talk a lot with my, um, you know, friends and family about, it's actually very difficult for me to post those old pictures 
and um, I made some posts about my own grandparents and that was very difficult for me as well because I do always think about the fact that the people taking those photographs it was very likely that they didn't see our ancestors as you know equal human beings yeah. um, they were often like watching them as you would like you know animals at a zoo right who are these strange people with their odd clothes and their language and let's take a picture of them because they're exotic right um so i struggle with that a lot um what you know why am i sharing these photos that were taken by people who very likely did not respect their subjects and the way that i justify it is because so much of our history is unwritten mm. and we have already so little that we kind of are forced to deal with what is given to us and what is given to us are those old records and for me i do share those images even though i struggle with that and my way of getting around it is to provide that very extensive caption as well as all of the references because i do find that there are people that share those images and I do think oftentimes, unfortunately, it's because of a certain like fetishization of, oh, look at my ancestors, look at this jewelry that they're wearing, look at these clothes that they're wearing, look how cool they were, but you don't really know the circumstances of that photo, right? You don't know how poor those people were and those that clothes might look fancy to us, that jewelry might look fancy to us now, but they probably were worth or valued very differently back then. And we don't know the actual circumstances of how those people lived. Um, so I worry about the commodification of images of people who have been abused or the victims of certain, um, you know, awful institutions. And that's why I do make it a point to make everything I do very substantial in reference to text and evidence and context. And I'm not really like neutral in what I talk about. I always, um, I never really refrain from calling out the people that are responsible and who did these things to those people. And that's the way that I kind of reconcile all of those complex emotions I have about sharing those images because I do struggle with it. And I struggle with it a lot as a guy because I do think that you know, as interesting as culture and religion can be, they're often not great to women and they're often not great to women, our family and our backgrounds. And so, you know, when I post that picture of the Orhini, it's a very beautiful image in terms of like aesthetics, but how is that, you know, more of like a tool of oppression, for example. So I don't want to ever fall into a category where I'm fetishizing or I'm oversimplifying because I'm a guy and the consequences of religion and culture will never affect me as directly as they would women. Yeah, I think, I mean, even you just recognizing that the people taking the images, the, the darkness behind that, I think is very powerful in itself um and probably something that not many people really do think about um but the harsh reality is just that is that these people um may not have um respected or or found that these that our ancestors were equal to them and the the point of of women having it harder in history or typically having it uh, bearing the brunt of it um 
is is true commonly um and especially in indo-caribbean culture um like you said in your podcast uh the the culture is is very much found within the women um and i think i think through struggle is where you find those those um intricate details and areas of the culture that you wouldn't necessarily find without it not saying that it's a positive asset to it but i think it does play a big role um so you are in america at a very complicated time right now um within the country uh there's a lot of things around race and and culture happening um does does the struggle towards what happened to our ancestors in any part play a role in um your beliefs now and how that affects you especially in this current climate for where you are mm-hmm. so it actually does um affect it a lot and i mentioned to you in our conversation before that um there was a wedding that my family attended where i had a relative getting married to a person from india and how because of like the mixture of cultures then the acceptance that really impacted me and made me interested in learning more about my family and my background that wedding was around 2015 right and it was in that perfect kind of 2015 2016 uh time period where things were really changing and a lot of more conversations about race and ethnicity were happening and it felt kind of like the world was falling apart and all of these like ideologies that i always knew were there i just didn't know that they were right next door to me um started arising and really taking a toll on me and my sense of safety and self and so there was this um kind of uh merging of this you know great thing happening in my family that is making me proud for the very first time in my background and not really proud for the first time but aware for the first time mm. and it's affecting my parents because they go there and they see all these people proud to be where they're from and that's new for them being of you know a certain generation um and then we also have this political situation where everyone is suddenly being placed in these boxes and treated very differently obviously all that was there before but now you're starting to deal with it on a daily basis and it's confronting you on a daily basis and it really really um it changed me in a lot of ways um the political instability here as well as the own personal changes in my family and i don't think that i would be as interested as i am in rediscovering my roots and teaching other people had all those things not kind of provided this perfect storm as they would say mm-hmm. now i'm not saying that i'm grateful for all of that awful stuff that happened because i do think that's like a very weird way to frame it i am just acknowledging that had they not happened in that way in that order i probably would not you know be doing this with you yeah um, of course yeah so definitely to be honest i think i the same to be honest like uh, if things hadn't gotten so messy and um in some sometimes really horrible in terms of 
people talking about race and religion and and it being a political center of topic then yeah maybe Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have even started my journey in talking about identity these things they kind of bring out um almost uh a sense in you that you never knew was really there um because to people like us I'm sure it seems so so straightforward it seems so um so so important that we bring these conversations to light and it has to be authentic so to to talk about it from our perspective which is underrepresented anyway is so powerful in a sense of um it's really allowing people to relate and to question their beliefs and to question how that affects their day-to-day life especially like when you're in a circumstance like how the states are in right now um so we were talking earlier, I think we briefly touched on performing an identity. Um, so do you ever feel like you have to prove your Caribbeanness to others? Because like you said, that you have, um, you have an equal sense of Caribbeanness and Asianness in the communities that you, that you uh, exist in. So do you, do you feel like you ever have to prove? Yeah, I feel like I have to prove it for both the Indianness and the Caribbeanness. Um, Within the Caribbean context, you know, what an example that I always bring up is the fact that uh, going to these schools that I went to, there was always an, a Daisy club and there was a Caribbean student association, right? And there was very much a sense that if I want to be a member of these clubs, I can. If I want to be a leader in one of these clubs, it has to be the Daisy club because I'm not representative enough as a Caribbean person to be uh, in a position of leadership within the Caribbean Student Association. And um, maybe that wasn't explicitly said, Uh, maybe it's different now because it's been a couple of years, but it was just kind of like an underlying idea that I'm not representative enough as a Caribbean person. And, you know, my school would have like these cultural performances and um, for like the Trinidadian portion, it would be, you know, all Indo-Trinidadian, Indo-Guyanese people, because again, I think it just kind of ended up working out that with migration patterns, we just ended up being a huge diaspora. Um, it would be all Indo-Guyanese, Indo-Trinidadian people like dancing to soca music and chutney music. And then when, you know, it was time for India to come on, it would be South Asian people and Indo-Trinidadian, Indo-Guyanese people dancing to Bollywood music. But if it was, you know, um, a Jamaican performance, my friends that were Indo-Jamaican were not in that performance. Um, Because again, like I mentioned, there's so much in these states about color and like what color is attached to what culture, right? And in these states to be Caribbean means to be Afro-Caribbean and it means to be a lot of times Christian, and I always hesitate to talk about that because people don't want to touch religion. Right, um, yeah. It's a very sensitive topic for people. But within the Caribbean context, I've always felt more discrimination for religion. And then within Indian uh, communities, I've always felt more discrimination for class. Um, to Indians, we are low caste um, people that left India and we mix and we don't know anything about our culture. That's the perception, um, not amongst everyone, but amongst the very kind of upper class ones who 
um, have migrated here. And then to, um, you know, Caribbean people, there's always a sense of like, we'll enjoy the same food. Um, but when it comes to religion, that's, um, we're not equal. Mm, uh, I, I, I agree. I, I've recognized that myself i think i haven't like i haven't actually ever taken the time to realize that that is the case but now that you're saying it it, it's true that is the way that Mm -hmm. is the way um it seems to be presented which i mean it's it's quite unfortunate because you you wouldn't necessarily think that religion would would have would cause that much of a divide between people that are going through the, the same experiences and the same struggle. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the thing about religion is that so often most people, it's not like they find it, you know, in their twenties and thirties, they grew up in it. Right. So right, it is yeah. of who they are, whether or not they realize it or not. Um, and religious centers are not just for religion. They become community sites, right? People, make all of their, a lot of their close friendships there, their family congregates there. It's a hub of their culture. So there is kind of like a lot of in-group thinking that is inevitably created within that. And that's true for Christian people, Muslim people, Hindu people, people of every um, religion, right? Everyone feels comfortable within their group. And we mentioned before, like with all the political instability, I think there was a sense of wanting to create community within minority groups, but also people seeking refuge in what they knew um, and going back to their own communities as well, because they were just, they felt unsafe or unsure. Um, But yeah, no, that's, as I mentioned, I've had to, going back to the performing, um, you know, I'll have Indian people say, what does this word mean in Hindi? Have you seen this movie? Have you heard this song? Um, what is this called? What is that called? Do you know that actor? Um, within the Caribbean community, it's, do you listen to soca music? What's your favorite song? Do you mm. go to Carnival? Do you um, like reggae? What's the reggae song that you like? Uh, jerk chicken versus curry chicken, like stuff like that, right? Like these very arbitrary, um, like litmus tests that people will give you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've definitely experienced having to perform. But then, as I mentioned again before, strength by numbers, I always had that Indo-Caribbean community to, um, to go back to. Or back on. And then just being in South Florida, there's so much diversity. Right. I've had kids that were half, um, you know, uh, Black, Jamaican, half Chinese, teachers that were quarter Swedish this and a quarter um Lebanese that like I grew up with so many multi-hyphenates mm. it didn't really take like a huge impact on my self-esteem or anything it was just kind of like uh, an awareness well so in in terms of the what you were saying about um how a lot of the especially elder generations um in the south asian communities view the indo-caribbeans in a sense of that we are from a lower cast and everything um now seeing so many people wanting to talk about indo-caribbean culture what i've noticed is an influx of young south asians wanting to shed light on indo-caribbean culture which is really lovely and really um it's it's nice that they want to educate people on on the diaspora however sometimes i feel a bit of uh an issue with 
not having Indo-Caribbean people tell Indo-Caribbean stories and the, the representation coming from us directly. Do you ever find that to be an issue? Is that maybe a possibility as to why you started the podcast? Yeah, definitely. And I think we have to consider a couple of things. So when you look at the, um, the South Asian diaspora abroad, the way that the immigration system is set up, it's set up to favor um, Indians in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, wherever in South Asia, who have an English medium education, who have an engineering degree, a medical license. So these countries like the UK, Canada, the US, they're kind of selecting these upper caste, very educated, westernized to a certain extent, South Asian people who are then coming to these countries to now live and live, um, you know, upper class lives as, you know, Korean medicine or engineering or law would give you. Mm. And then you have Indo-Caribbean people who have largely left um, economic uncertainty as a working class people to then go live in these same areas where they're now coming up in contact with South Asians who are of different standing. And then for South Asians, they're making this initial migration to the States and to Canada and to the United Kingdom where things like caste won't necessarily guard them from the racism that they think it will. Um, because again, they're just brown in a white world at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. And then you have people like us where our ancestors came to the Caribbean, they had to survive and get rid of caste. And now we are the product of a second migration to the diaspora. So it's almost like they're behind us in a certain way, mm. but then they're elevated in terms of status and money. So we don't really communicate in the same way. I think that that's changing as time goes by with the younger generation just becoming more accepting. And I also think that I've always gotten along well with working class South Asian people. Mm. I have never gotten along with very wealthy South Asian people. And I think that's a huge distinction to make um, because obviously with working class South Asian people, they themselves have experienced class discrimination. Um, so yeah, I've noticed that's a huge challenge. And then obviously because South Asian people are coming here with more resources, they have kids who are renegotiating identity, going to school, they're trying to figure out, well, how do I... Um, you know, distinguish myself and then they find out, oh, there's Indians in the Caribbean. That sounds like a good thing to get my degree in because that seems like it's going to set me apart. Who are those Indian people in, um, you know, New York who sound like they have Jamaican accents? What's that about? And so they, <laughs> they, kind, of, they kind of end up like monopolizing Indo-Caribbean studies. And then you have other Indo-Caribbean people who are getting like heckled when they take, you know, South Asian Studies 101 for not being South Asian enough. And there's not Indo-Caribbean Studies within Caribbean Studies. So I think there is that monopoly. But I do think as we have people like, you know, Gaitra Bahadur, who did Cooley Woman, Rajiv Mohabir, there are people like Daryl uh, Baksh, who um, studies chutney music and soca music in Canada. Um, I do think we have a new wave of Indo-Caribbean academics. And a huge part of why I started the Cutlass was to get acquainted with academics back home, 
both the ones that have been doing it for generations, like Patricia Mohammed, who is my first guest, who is such an iconic, I think, Indo-Caribbean feminist um, and historian. And then you have all of these young academics coming up. And that's why I kind of started to bridge those two divides. Yeah, and to make the information i guess digestible i mean for a lot of like younger people especially from the feedback that i heard from the article that i wrote was that they'd never read something that was so digestible and easy to understand without having to read all these academic books just to get an understanding of who we are and i think that is something that is quite new to the space but very valuable it's so important that we don't just throw out a lot of jargon to a bunch of people that don't quite understand what the hell we're talking about and to actually make it so that it's it's easy and it's 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 um translatable so um how invested are you in the indian heritage and what does this knowledge do for your identity does it further it does it make it stronger for you or is it just what what does it do for you well, for me, as I mentioned to you before, because I grew up in such a community with this, with so many Indo-Caribbeans, like I said, I always associated Guyanese with Indian. You know, all the Guyanese people that were my friends were Indian. All of the Trinidadian people that were my friends were Indian. Um, I never like put two and two together and thought that there were Afro-Guyanese people and Afro-Trinidadian people for the longest while. <laughs> that, sounds, um, that sounds crazy to think about, but I think when you just think of migration, the Indo-Caribbean migration is larger than the Afro-Caribbean migration from Trinidad and Guyana. So just numerically, there are more of us. And then we are largely Hindu because of certain generations that people came most of them were hindu Mm. um and so because of that we're all congregating in you know the same five restaurants uh the same five mandirs the same couple of parks where everything happens and so i just always thought that that's it that's who we are and for me growing up with indian heritage with my grandmothers they listened to a lot of old Bollywood music and watched a lot of old Bollywood movies from like the 50s and 60s. And I know those like movies and those songs, like the back of my hand, you would think that they came out like this past summer or something. Um, and a lot of those songs, uh, there's a nostalgia factor to them, right? Because at the time when they were coming out, they were obviously being watched by Indo-Caribbean people in Trinidad and Guyana who were living these very um, separate lives from other people in the Caribbean. And that's not something we ever talk about. Yes, Indians came to Trinidad and Guyana in the 1800s, but they very much lived, at least in Trinidad, they were very much, I don't want to use you as segregated, but they were very much living in these areas that were sequestered off the side for about a hundred years, right? Um, So that identity continued to develop and stay very much the culture that they brought from India. They weren't interacting with a lot of other people. They weren't going to the big towns and capital cities. Um, And so for me and my family, having my grandmothers who very much had this sense of nostalgia for them, for like the idea of India and the music and the culture and they, you know, knew the language, stuff like that. Um, 
it's a very big part of my life. My sisters used to dance and do Indian dance. Um, you know, I grew up watching Bollywood. We would eat Indo Trinidadian food all the time, as well as South Asian food. Um, being Hindu has always been a part of who I am, and I have an Indian name, mm-hmm. and that's a very big thing. The way I am coded to the rest of the world is as an Indian person. Yeah. Um, and then with my grandmother's, another reason why I got into all of this was in order to understand the background that they came from, I ended up learning or teaching myself the language. Wow. So I, I taught myself Hindi. I would listen to Chutney music and teach myself Bhojpuri. Um, in order to get resources, I started going to the South Asian Mandir to get a teacher. I have a teacher up to this day who is in India right now and we communicate on Skype. I taught my sisters Hindi. Um, and that was a big part for me in trying to understand where my grandmothers were coming from. You know, and I was always just very curious, why do I know every word of this song and I don't know what it means? Yeah. So for me, learning the language has been a huge part of my own particular journey because it, it gives me so much access to the documents that we have. Like people always ask me, how do you know all of this information? And I know it because I'm not relying on translations. Mm. Of the, I can just read it and translate it for other people. And through learning about the language, I've met so many other people that have learned it. Um, a guest on the podcast, Visham Bimal, he is revitalizing Trinidad and Guyanese Bhojpuri. And he knows a lot of um, Indo-Surinamese people that still speak the language as well. Rajiv Mohabir, who we mentioned, who's the poet, he learned the language. And I uh, became friends with him through that. So it's brought so many different opportunities into my life learning the language. But since we are not people that all still speak it, it is very much tied to Indian heritage. That is really amazing. Like the level of commitment just shows how important this really is for you. Like, honestly, it really is like the, the, the desire to want to connect to your roots. Do you feel like um, your religion has helped you to be rooted in the Indian culture much better? Or if, if, for example, if you were, if you weren't in the religion that you're in, do you feel like you would have the desire to want to connect to your Indian roots as much as you do now? Um, To be honest, I'm not really sure in the sense that, you know, the vast majority of my family is Hindu, but we do have, you know, family that married Muslims and, um, and Christians and they raise their children both. Um, So I do have like a certain proximity to Islam and Christianity and know a lot about the, um, the religions and we observe little things here and there for Eid and Christmas and all that stuff. Um, So I don't know necessarily just because, and I have, I've never really talked about it a lot, but I did have um, like a foray into Christianity for a little bit. And I really got burnt by that experience. And that kind of goes back to the um, way I was felt like the kind of rejection I felt from the Caribbean community on a religious basis. Right. Uh, I do think religion does play a role because, you know, you go to Amanda, you're singing songs in a different language. There's a pundit speaking in Sanskrit. 
um, everyone knows the prayers and they don't know they don't know word by word what it translates to but they know what prayer to say when they know the general feeling there are people in the temple that know the language because they are the musicians or they are the religious leaders so there is still that viable connection the language does hold a place of cultural significance still um, and then obviously everyone's wearing the clothes and then when you're not doing religious stuff, you know, there's Bollywood night at the Mandir, right, for the youth group, or there's Bollywood dance classes. And what are you doing? You're listening to Hindi music. So there is that constant maintenance of connection back to India or to an idea of India. And then more and more, I'm seeing, you know, Bhangra music coming into Indo-Caribbean circles. I'm seeing a lot more Indo-Caribbean people making, you know, South Asian food, uh, mainland South Asian food. Um, it's mixing a lot more now. So I do think, yes, generally, um, it does maintain that connection, but it's difficult when you, you know, you only have your personal experiences. Right, yeah. So let's uh, move forward and talk about the model minority myth. So in order to ensure that the races didn't make alliances, the British almost created like this hierarchy between Indians um, and Africans. This affected things such as financial prosperity, politics, um, general entitlement within the countries. Um, obviously, this is quite a sensitive topic amongst elder generations. Um, but I feel like it's important to break down the manipulation that was brought built between the two coexisting races and recognize how this has resulted in a great divide. Do you feel the model minority concept has contributed to the Indo-Caribbean people's lack of representation in the Caribbean? Um, I think this is a really super complex question. Um, and going back just to like the British uh, model of divide and conquer, and I'm interested to know what you've heard from like your family with that. Right. Um, for people who don't know, it was basically British, you know, told the African descended people don't trust the Indians. And then they told the Indians the same about the Africans. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, I do think that there are certain misconceptions about the idea of being a model minority within the Indo-Caribbean community. And then I do think that we are victims of that idea. And I do also think we're guilty of perpetuating it. Yeah. The reason I say that is because for a very long time, we were not given access to education. Um, being Hindus, being Muslims, we did not get religious rights until the 50s at best, really the 60s, 70s and onward. Um, so, you know, my family, my family did not really go to school. My grandparents didn't go to school. My great grandparents did not go to school. Um, and my parents had schooling and went to, you know, secondary school. However, the idea of college is so far beyond anything that they ever thought about, right? And I think what ends up happening is when you deprive people of something, that's what they end up wanting the most. Yep. So you deprive Indians of education for so long, they begin to see it as the only way to progress. And then there's all of these obstacles for a very long time. If you wanted to be a teacher, you had to be Christian, at least in Trinidad. You had to be Presbyterian, you had to be Catholic. Um, if you wanted to go to these schools, yes, they would teach you, but they'd also try to convert you. 
and conversion came with don't eat that food anymore have an english name speak english um and for that was a huge reason why like the language ended up being lost over time because it didn't have utility or function within education so there was a lot of ideas of indian excellence within indenture and that was because of misconceptions of indenture there was this idea that indians got paid um substantial amounts of money for doing work they got small sums of money not a lot of money as is often a misconception yeah also the idea that they came here and they were allowed free passage back to india to leave and go as they please also another um lie they were not there was you know the availability of an option that costed money that they could not afford because what little money they got they were then taxed you know indiscriminately by the colonizers there was this idea that they got free land my family up until this day does not own the land that they live on that land is rented land that they have to renew every 99 or 100 years and also the indian people at least in trinidad the land that they were given was like the worst most undesirable land that only became desirable after you know a period of hundreds of 100 years when indentured people you know brought back sugarcane and rice and all of that stuff because they were familiar with the territory back in india that kind of landscape um so there's a lot of misconceptions there about indian excellence that were not really true they did not all have money they were not all wealthy and successful um but then i think as time progresses if you tell people that they are a model minority subliminally they start to believe it yeah and very much in the same way that if you tell other people that they are not a model minority that they are not intelligent then what reason do they have to want to succeed anyway yeah. and i do think that our political leaders um are very much guilty of perpetuating that um rather than doing actual work to help give people education services um but yes i do think because it has been given to us of like oh we are um this model minority we should put more attention to other groups to highlight other groups and therefore that's why when people think about trinidad guyana people don't know that half the population is indian they don't know about chutney music they know about curry in terms of food but they don't really know about indian food um anytime we see anything marketed about guyana and trinidad it's carnival it's yeah. soca music caribbean music um it's never anything indian and i don't know if that's because people think well why give money to the people that have and obviously we mentioned where that idea comes from um but yes i do think it has helped us in a way where we didn't have education for so long so we fought for it and we um emphasize it we emphasize it at sometimes a great personal cost mm. so not a smooth you know it's not a very easy thing to become very educated um and then we also have suffered from it yeah i agree i think i mean in terms of my family history um uh, they were in schools but like you said in terms of religious um freedom it was like catholic schools um i think maybe i i'm pretty sure 
my aunt once told me that they used to take um like the hindu students and allow them to have a separate class and she would go and sneak in with them um and like listen to what they were being educated on and then the women would stop being educated um uh at a certain age and the men normally it was the eldest boy he would go into like the main city to be educated to a higher standard but even then there wasn't much opportunity. So when a lot of them came to Britain in the 1950s, um, there was this strong sense of, like you said, I need to get an education because I haven't been able to do so for so for, for what I want to be able to become in life. Um, so that's what happened with my grandparents. My granddad, he came and, and studied further here so he could get a better job. And, and, and I know that happened with a lot of other people. Um, but I think what also happened in that process is that, especially in the UK, a lot of, so what had happened was this model minority kind of followed them. And it was because there was so much racial injustice at the time, um, the Indo-Caribbean people kind of put their heads down and said, we're going to kind of work as much as we can to gain as much financial benefit and kind of follow the same model as the white British person so we can be on equal standing. Whereas the Afro-Caribbean people, rightfully so, wanted to rebel against these racial injustices. Um, and therefore they were seen as quite a rebellious group. Um, and like you said, you don't know which is is worse is to be held as a model minority or to be told you can't do much at all but i think the problem with the model minority concept is that you're saying that this one race is above everyone else which kind of gives them this sort of complex um which is manipulative it gives them a, a a sense of not wanting to associate with anyone else in case it in, in case it affects their financial prosperity or or standing within society um so this idea kind of followed um the indo-caribbean people to the uk in the windrush era and i think that's why there's such a divide between the two communities here um do you feel like this was the same for the for the um, indo-caribbeans that t chose to migrate to the united states you know, I think it's interesting because with the Windrush, that was like the 50s, 60s, right? Yeah. And that's fascinating to me because in Trinidad, people really would not, at least Indo-Trinidadian Indo people, um, for the majority, really would not have been getting that education until around that time. Um, because again, Hindu Muslim schools were legalized in like the 50s and 60s. Now, the thing I've always found very interesting about Trinidad and Guyana is in Guyana, the population is very clustered in certain geographic areas, whereas the rest of it is very rural and um, not so much inhabited by Afro and Indo-Guyanese people. But then in Trinidad, we're spread out across the entire country. So the interesting thing about education in Guyana is that it would have given people, as you mentioned, your grandfather, the opportunity to go to school and be with like people from other backgrounds. Whereas in, in Trinidad, they thought if we build these Christian schools, we'll get them to convert and stuff. But they just ended up building these schools in areas that were already either entirely black or entirely Indian. Mm. So they, they were educating people separately they were giving people this sense of achievement separately. 
Mm. So people are developing this sense of cultural pride and attainment separately. Um, and that's a huge reason why the culture ended up continuing because you just have all these Indian people in one area um, and all of these Black Trinidadian people in one area. So people are growing, but they're doing so separately. Um, and in terms of migration, the Indo-Guyanese migration began a bit earlier than the Indo-Trinidadian uh, migration, just because I think of certain, you know, political uh, situations yeah. in Guyana around the 50s and 60s. The Trinidadian one really kicked off in like the 70s, 80s, and so it was a little bit later. I do think that just as generally with all migration groups, there is this huge emphasis on education. Um, we as parents will make these great personal sacrifices to leave everything we know, all the people we know, so that you can get education that you would not have. And that's a lot of responsibility to place on children. And so you just end up having all this pressure that you then have to excel in order to reach. So I do think it's true. We do carry those ideas to Canada, um, uh, uh, the United States. And then also, really, in order to be considered an equal in the diaspora to, you know, non-minorities, we have to overexcel because there's yeah. certain ideas placed on us by other people already that if you're not the best, why are you here? Why do you have jobs? Why do you have degrees? Um, so it is very much our own in-group um, ideas of success and other things that are placed on us. We talk a lot of time about imposter syndrome, and I think we focus a little bit too much on that within our community of, I've attained this certain level of success, why do I feel like I'm an imposter? You feel like an imposter because other people are making you feel that way. Mm. So it's because outside of the community, there are all of these expectations placed on us. So I do think we carry it and we're also expected to uphold it. Yeah, I think that that is really true. And especially coming from a community that, I mean, the, the, the whole root of us being taken to the Caribbean has so much issue around caste and your position in society. Mm. Um, and I think that does play a role in people wanting to excel and the the implications of what people may may think of us and, and us having to prove our worth. Um but yeah, no, it's 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 quite a complicated it's complicated to break down because when I think when I first heard of um the idea of a model minority, it was presented to me in such a way where it was a matter of fact that this is typically how it is that the normally the Asian community wants to um, assimilate more to a white idea of life of putting your head down and working as hard as you can so you can earn as much money and that the um, the Afro-Caribbean race um, tend to rebel but it's it's more of a myth if when now like thinking about it it's not a matter of fact it's something that was sold to us it was something that was taught to us to create divide between us which is such a shame because i still hear the elder generation sometimes talking about um the differences between the two races and 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 as if they're not of equal standing 
And I sometimes look at them and I think you've been so like you've been, this is what you've been taught. It's been so manipulated that this is now how you think. And it's so damaging to the things that we're trying to do nowadays, where we, we we're trying to bring two communities together and show that we are a part of the, the culture and we are a part of the, um, in the Caribbean. Um, and it's, I think it's just such a shame when I think of it, I feel like th- these were two struggling communities that were just pitted against each other. And it's just created way more damage than I think anyone would have ever imagined. There's a side of it where it's very much a lie and we're all just kind of like pretending. Yeah. <laughs> There's the fact that sadly myths do become, um, you know, real life sometimes. Yeah. You have the South Asian diaspora that is one of the most quote unquote qualified in terms of degrees and education achievement and income level, but then has this high rate of suicide and this high rate of depression. And then, so if you're told that you need to do all of these things, eventually it becomes reality and you do them. And then on the other side, if you're told that you're not going to accomplish all of those things that you just are not like other people, And then you don't because you think, well, if no one believes in me, why should I believe in myself? You're already set up as being not within the favor of the system. So it has all, and then obviously there's depression and suicide that comes with that. So there's the level of people being told that they can do so much, doing it, not getting what they were promised in terms of happiness, because the way we measure happiness is completely wrong in our community. And then there's the people who told that they'll never amount to anything who end up then not having that belief to go and, you know, get higher education or they do. And then they realize that they're not even welcome in those spaces because of the people that make up academia who are very much not welcoming. Um, And then they have those issues. So it's very much a lie in a certain sense, but then it's become a reality and it's had a very much of a impact on both of us yeah it's true it, it that is what ends up happening in turn and when i i recently saw the statistics on suicides in um the, in in the in the caribbean community and it really shocked me i i wasn't aware of how high it is or even the reasons as to why it's so high do you do you have any understanding as to why it's so high so you know it's funny because uh, Whenever I read those statistics, I'm always shocked by it. And then I realize that my family has been touched by suicide and my family has been touched by a lot of suicide. And I don't know if it's, it's so normal that we just don't even think about it until we see actual numbers and it seems a little bit high. But yeah, my family has very much been impacted by suicide. And I actually got into this a little bit with... Um, uh, Professor Patricia Muhammad, who is my first guest on the podcast, she talked about how astronomic the rates of suicide were among these young Indian men that came through indenture because they were these young, you know, we're talking about success and achievement. Here are these young Indian men being told that they're going to these countries to get gold. Like that's what they were told. They're going to get gold. They might get to go to England to be educated they are the first in their family they're going to go work get money they're not bringing their wives if they were married they're not bringing their kids if they had kids 
and they come and they're sold a lie, right? So the model minority is kind of what they were told all those years ago. We have selected you because we think you're fit for the job to come and replace, you know, we're getting rid of slave labor. We think that you can come and do this job. You will get rewarded and they didn't. And the rates of suicide were very high. It was high to the point where, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of like Indian tonic. Um, that was like a slang for a type of pesticide that Indian men would use to commit suicide. Oh my gosh. And I know people who have done that. And it was so common that they just called it Indian tonic. Um, there are like some Calypso songs that I believe reference Indian tonic because it was so well known that that's how Indian men would commit suicide by drinking pesticide as it was something that they had access to being agricultural people. But obviously you have all these families, you know, I have so many widows in my family and you have these families growing up where they're growing up without fathers who committed suicide, a lot of them. Um, and yeah, it gets passed down. And I mean, I imagine that if someone in your own family commits suicide and it's somebody close to you, it, it may make you aware of it in a sense that you want to fight against it, but it also for people who are very depressed becomes like this idea of, oh, well, that's an option because it's so common in right. my community. Um, and then because we don't talk about it, like there are lots of people in my family who have been affected by suicide and I had no idea for the longest time. I thought that they died in a car accident or they had cancer. And then it wasn't until I would like overhear conversations that I found out that they had killed themselves. Oh my gosh. Uh, so you have these people who don't have tools to deal with all of the stress that they're dealing with, much like our ancestors were told a complete lie of you do X, Y, and Z, you become rich and successful and you help your family. And it wasn't the case. Wow. I, that's really shocking for me. I, I didn't, I'm just so unaware to that side of the community and how like the whole Indian tonic thing, I had no idea that that even existed. That's really crazy. Uh, like, it's like it's so crazy because it's like a very specific brand i don't even remember the name of it but it's like a very specific type that they would use that they just call it indian tonic that's so strange that's really honestly that's really shocking um so so to move on to a lighter note (laughs) um uh just to conclude i guess because we're hitting the one hour mark so what makes you want to educate people on your heritage Um, I think because as our diaspora is growing, we're seeing these kind of gaps in knowledge, right? And as time goes by, I look at all these books that I have that are interviews with older generations. And you have books like uh, Jahajan by Peggy Mohan, where she's interviewing women that were indentured. Or you have Cooley Woman by Gayatri Bahadur, and she's retracing her identity. And the guy that I work with in Trinidad on the language he records a lot of older people speaking in the language. Mm. But what happens when all of those people are gone? You know, at best we have 10 more years because um, we're reaching, you know, how many years since indenture ended. Yeah. Um, so we're losing those people and we, we have their stories. We are documenting it. But what do we do with it? And we mentioned that academia is not accessible to the average person. And I think it's very unfortunate that I have seen a lot of Indo-Caribbean academics who will 
go into academia with the intention to educate and they lose their ability to educate in common everyday language. You're not going to be able to talk to your family with all of these. You can't, you know, decolonize using colonized language. I always kind of say that as a joke, but it's very true. Yeah. I think like where you and I come in is where we kind of occupy these different spaces that are maybe more like artistic adjacent. Um, It's easier for people to understand. And I want to educate people in plain language that tells a story. I did my degree, my undergraduate degree in English, even though I mainly do engineering. And I love being able to tell stories. So when I write my captions, I try to frame them as a tiny story that is well-written, that's understandable, that takes people from point A to B. If there's a part two, it'll flow nicely and it makes it easy to understand and you can hold on to it. And you have a visual element via the pictures on Instagram that helps. And then you have a podcast, which is supplemental. So I'm trying to create tangible memories and ideas and bits of knowledge that can stick with people that they can pass on because we're not going to have these all the people that can just do everything for us anymore. We have to decide what we pass on and what we innovate, but I think it would be such a shame if things were lost because we forgot to ask, if we forgot to record it, if we forgot to write it down when we were hearing these same stories how many times in our childhood, you know? Yeah. the whole point is to just have a written document and a record that Instagram page will always be there. The podcast will always be there. And it's also the chance to talk about things in a much more complicated way, because even like race, I will see people say the British tin the Africans against the Indians, the Indians against the Africans, and then the conversation always ends there. Nobody ever wants to talk about the fact that we've been independent nations for decades now. Yes. And we really need to hold accountable our leaders and our political leaders, our Afro leaders, our Indian leaders, everyone in between that, because it's not only Black and Indian people in the Caribbean. And we need to talk about race in a very, in a way that is deserving of how complicated it is and so i'm interested to do all of that it's so so true like even bringing it back to what you were saying about how we won't have these people for very much longer like the these last people in that generation are really the ones that hold the most information and i only started doing all of this work was because my grandmother was dying and i realized like I'm not going to be able to ask these questions for very much longer. Like there's going to be a point where I just won't have any answers. Um, But it's so true. Like soon there will be gone and we need something to be able to continue the storytelling in a way that's digestible for, for um, everyday people, because we can read academic texts for as long as we want, but it takes a long time to be able to dissect what they mean and the jargon that they use and um, to make it uh, readable to the average person. So I think that's what I love about the young people of in the Indo-Caribbean communities and what they're doing is it, we're, we're not only making it easier to understand, but we're creating a new scope to look at it. For example, in the fashion industry, to look at uh, identity through clothing 
is 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 a whole different way of understanding a community um a way that might not be expressible in words um so to to find different lenses to to view this complex identity is is really really interesting um so what do you hope to achieve like what's the goal apart from you know continuing the storytelling where where are we going (laughs) I think it's just to make people think about certain ideas in a way that they haven't before. Even just going back to what you said, it's very important for us to realize that we are people of an oral tradition. That is our identity. Bhojpuri was not a written language. Our ancestors were not literate in the sense that they could read and write. So they passed down their stories, they passed down their music, they passed down everything. And that survived for many decades because, you know, if our parents would talk about growing up in villages, if someone's getting married, the entire village is taking part. But now in the times that we live in, we're all separated. We don't all live back in China and Guyana. Things are different now and we can't rely on stories passed down. We have to write it down and keep a record and teach it to each other and pass it on. We can choose what we pass on and what we don't. That's the same exact thing our ancestors did. They kept renegotiating their identity and we'll continue to do the same. But we need to have the information for us to do that or it's just going to die. And I think seeing young people doing it, seeing people like me and you and, you know, because young people, we tend to be rebellious against the elders. Um, so just seeing, you know, for people seeing me, I'm 23 and I know Bhojpuri and Hindi. You know, for most people, they would have thought that that was a, a dead language from before. But, you know, here I am and I know it and that's with something. You're doing work in fashion, which is an industry that you would probably, how many people can name Indo-Caribbean people in fashion, right? Yeah, I mean... So, just being young and doing it is a huge step. Um, just having recorded history is huge. And just have, being able to provide a platform for conversations that would otherwise not be had is kind of my motivation for doing it. Just because I know so many people who have self-hatred for things that they feel ashamed of. I can't tell you how many people have messaged me because of the like little Hindi Bhojpuri I post on social media. I've had so many people um, message me and say, I thought that this was a word that my family made up. And I used to feel ashamed about it because I thought that they weren't educated and they didn't really know how to you know, speak or they spoke broken English. So I always felt so conscious of my accent. And now I'm reading a post and you're telling me that this is an actual word that is an ancient word that does very much have a meaning that has since died out in India that we have somehow held on to for over a hundred years. And now I'm proud of it. And just the fact that one post can make someone rethink all of the shame that they've had for however yeah. long is huge. That is huge. That's really huge. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in pursuing through all of this is I would love to be able to talk to um, to other ethnicities that settled in the Caribbean and to get their perspective. Because although we say we are so underrepresented, there are so many ethnicities in the Caribbean 
people have no idea that they're even there. Like the Chinese um, population in the Caribbean or the Portuguese population in the Caribbean. And it'd be really interesting to get their perspective on if there's similarities there between our two communities or if it's a whole different world within itself. Yeah, in Guyana you have natives and in Trinidad yeah. we have Lebanese and Arab Trinidadians. Yeah. I mean, that's all like untapped knowledge that we still have to get into. That brings me to the end. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on. Um, if people want to find your work and the stuff that you're doing, uh, where can they find you? So the Cutlass is at Cutlass Podcast on everything, Instagram, Twitter, If you go to the Instagram or Twitter, there is a link that will carry you to all of the episodes, the blog that I'm still working on that is not like a full blog as yet. Um, And then, yeah, the Instagram page and all of like the collaborators that I work with. So everything is there and people can email me at uh, cutlastpodcast at gmail.com with questions. And yeah, I'm always there, always um, happy to help anyone. Perfect. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing for the community, for educating people in parts of the community that maybe even I'm not even aware of. There's, There's so much to it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And for people who don't know, uh, Say is a huge reason why there is the Cutlass. So thank you. A big formal thank you. Oh, no 